Hi, I'm Jennifer Palmieri, and welcome to Just Something About Her from The Recount and iHeartRadio. On this podcast, I talk to powerful women about how they made it to the top on their own terms. Here to help me introduce this week's guest is my producer, Sari Soffer. So this is a special guest today. Amanda Littman is the co-host of another Recount podcast called Battleground, which is the show that answers questions about politics you didn't realize you should be asking. And I can personally tell you that I learned so much by listening to Amanda, her co-host, Faz Shakir, and all the guests they bring on. When I want to tackle a tough question in politics and not get a conventional response, I will call Amanda and Faz to see what they think, because they both are pioneers and they're always churning mm-hmm. on what is really holding progress back. Yeah. They're both just fantastic. Last week, they got me all fired up about the Republicans' holds on the Supreme Court, which, you know, we've talked about a lot as it relates to abortion. And then a few weeks back, I loved their conversation around critical race theory as a culture war. It's good stuff and stuff we need to be talking about, even when it doesn't feel like there's an election on the horizon, because there's always an election on the horizon. And to use Amanda's words, we need to treat every month like it's October of an election year. We worked together on the Clinton campaign, um, and I've just been really proud of the fantastic work that she does as co-founder and co-executive director of Run for Something, which is an organization that recruits and trains young progressives to run for state and local offices. So they're focused on down-ballot elections like state legislatures, city councils, and school boards. And I want to ask her why she thinks that's so important for the Democratic Party's long-term growth. Mm -hmm. I also want to ask how her organization is sidestepping the big party gatekeepers that have been obstacles for women and people of color from getting into office. And as they discuss on Battleground a lot, whether she thinks democracy is on the line right now. So let's get to it. Amanda Littman, welcome to Just Something About Her, your sister podcast here on The Recount. What a delight. I'm so excited. (laughs) And like when I say your sister podcast, I truly mean it because you certainly know what it means to have someone said about you or someone you work for, there's just something about her. Mm-hmm. In this case, there's just something about you that's like super entrepreneurial, risk-taking, bold. And I'm talking about getting married, <laughs> among other things. But you've always said that you would never get married. I did. It's um, this quote will likely make an appearance in my wedding at the end of this <laughs> month. And that I talked to the inimitable Rebecca Traister for her book on single women when I was in college yeah. and told her how I thought getting married would ruin my life. And now a decade later, I'm marrying like the best person I know who's very much not ruining my life. But it is something that comes back to haunt me occasionally. <laughs> haunt you. I mean, I think it's something that people could learn from because what did you fear would happen and what do you see now? This is like you very much expanding your aperture of what your life can be, right? Yeah. I mean, when I was 21, I when I was talking to Rebecca at that point in time, I was an intern on the Obama campaign and I was about to get hired because it was like a couple of months before I graduated. Yes. All I wanted was a big job. I wanted a big job that could make a difference and change the world. And I didn't understand how one could do that And also like tie your life to someone and to commit to a place and a person and have to be there for them and tie their dreams to yours. And, you know, took me a while, meandered my way through some crappy relationships and then found just like the best person who so vividly shares those ambitions and dreams. And I think a lot about like, I think it was Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I believe it was like the Mm -hmm. most important decision you can make as your partner. And like the most important decision you can make for your career as your partner. And like my future husband is just the best. It's interesting to put in that perspective, like the thing that you can do for your career is to pick the 
right partner, but I feel like you've also figured out a way to structure your life in a way that like you can do what you want to do and still have something left over. I'm really lucky in that I've like created my dream job. Right. Get to live in a city I love with a person I love and create a life that I'm really happy with in a way that I don't think 21 year old me could have ever imagined. I could not have imagined even probably 44 year old me. I'm 54 now. This kind of life where I think you and I have both started some things on our own, but then, you know, put together sort of a package of different kinds of work and, you know, like lucky enough to be able to do that on your own terms. Mm -hmm. In addition to hosting the podcast (laughs) Battleground here on The Recount, you started Run for Something Mm -hmm. and you have a podcast for Run for Something as well. I mean, I know and I'm like so proud of your origin story of Run for Something, but tell us how and why you created that. So... I worked on a series of campaigns before 2016. I did Obama 2012. I did his nonprofit for a year. I worked for the Florida governor's race in 2014, which we lost. And that was bad. <laughs> so I moved to New York to work for Hillary and starting in t- like early 2015 and was the email director, as you know, doing online fundraising yeah. and volunteer recruitment. And about a week after election day, I got a Facebook message from somebody I went to college with. Hey, Amanda, I'm a public school teacher in Chicago. They keep cutting our budgets. If Trump can be president, seems like anybody can do this. You've been working in politics. <laughs> what do I do? Totally. It's the same story over and over again. Yeah. It's like, if that guy can be president, I can do anything. And I didn't have an answer for him for who to call. Because mm-hmm. like in November 2016, if you were young, if you were newly excited about this, and if you wanted to do more than vote and more than volunteer, there was nowhere you could go to pick up your call. And that, to me, felt like a symptom of some really big problems in the Democratic Party. So reached out to a whole bunch of people, one of whom became my co-founder, this guy named Ross Morales Ricketto, who's been doing campaigns for like 15 years. Also a good husband, Mm -hmm. (laughs) husband of a good friend of ours, Jess. An excellent husband um, and an excellent business partner in a way that like I don't think I could have expected that we should create an organization that would solve this problem that would be somewhere for young people like my friend from college to go to if they wanted to run for office. So we launched Run for Something on Inauguration Day, thinking it'd be really small. We'd get 100 people in the first year. We had 1,000 people sign up in the first week. As of today, we're up to nearly 80,000 young people. We've endorsed more than 1,700. We've elect more than 500. Mostly women, mostly people of color, all ages 18 to 40. Mostly people of color. Mostly people of color. That's about 56% of our winners are people of color. 55% are women. And it's about a quarter LGBTQ+. They're amazing people. They're amazing leaders. They're already making a difference. Many of them are already running for higher office. So we're four and a half years in now. And seeing this work pay off is just so fucking cool. Why did you specifically think it was important to focus on young people? Well, part of it is representation. Um, Mm -hmm. Young people are wildly underrepresented in government. The average age in the United States Senate is, I believe, like 64. In the House, it's 58. I would like bring the numbers down. Yeah, you're a youngster. (laughs) And this is after 2020 when we did elect a record number of young people. It's still quite (laughs) old. Right. Because after 2018, when so many women, when people Mm -hmm. were like, great, so what is it now? It's like, what is it now? It's 25%. (laughs) That's what it is now. The median American is 38 years old. It's not reflective of the American people. And it directly affects the tenor of debate on everything from the internet and technology. If you've ever watched one of those tech hearings in the Congress, it's just like- No, I don't actually watch tech hearings. Yeah, because it's horrific. It's like, let me explain to my grandma how Gmail works or to housing, to equal pay, to you know reproductive health, to childcare. Like it would be a bigger deal to institute childcare as infrastructure if more members of Congress were taking care of their kids right now. There aren't that many young parents of kids right now. 
so many of our candidates will run and win and be the first or only renters on the body they serve. Oh, interesting. That is a big deal. Like there might be one person who's a renter currently serving in the California State Assembly. Maybe. Because home ownership, that's huge. Yeah. You're talking about affordable housing and you don't have someone who's a renter in the room. That's a perspective of a huge swath of the population that's being left out. So it's more representative, so you're making better policy decisions, but then you're also building this bench of leaders, which seems really critical. We wanted to think about long-term career growth of folks. I've seen some studies that show one of the many, many, many reasons we've never had a woman president is that historically, most women have waited until their kids left home to run for office, which means they don't start in politics until their 50s or 60s. And like, you just need more time. You need more time to get the experience. Mm -hmm. Then I also feel like you need more time to figure out how it is that you handle mm-hmm. the double standards, the way the press react to you. You know, I was talking with some friends that work in the vice president's office. Mm. And um, I said, you know, when I went to go work for Hillary Clinton mm-hmm. on her presidential campaign, I was like, I'm totally the best person for this job because I worked for two presidents and I had done, you know, five presidential campaigns. And I felt like I was a bus driver. Mm-hmm. It's like I've been a bus driver for 20 years. And when I joined the Clinton campaign, it was like all of a sudden the steering wheel that I had used for 20 years, like no longer worked or like When I put my foot on the accelerator, it was like the brakes came on. And when I put my foot on the brakes, it was like the thing would floor. Like everything I touched just went kind of haywire. You know, I wasn't used to dealing with the sort of press and public reaction to a woman leader. I think maybe this is why Gretchen Whitmer is particularly adept at handling, you know, sort of like attacks. It just keeps rolling and she's very decisive. Mm -hmm. She's been at this for a long time, right? Like she was elected to the Michigan state legislature, had been at it for a long time. So she had that opportunity to like, just sort of know how Mm -hmm. to navigate this stuff better. Yeah. I think a lot about like, like Ayanna Presley is another good example here of like, she came up through the Boston city council, like has a very clear sense of self. And started out like us. Yeah. I worked with Ayanna Presley when she was on the Kerry campaign. She was a staff person. She worked on Capitol Hill. And then she busted out on her own. That's something a lot of people Mm. don't do. She was in the city council, Boston city council. You ain't throwing anything at her she hasn't seen before. Tough. I do look at women like Whitmer, Presley, Harris, Abrams, Mm -hmm. who can get a lot of criticism, but at the same time, they Mm -hmm. seem to be able to navigate it because I feel like they've had to be so clear, understand themselves and be really clear with the public, who they are, why they're doing this. So you can't really throw them off their game. Mm -hmm. When you see, you know, like the coverage of the vice president is getting, you know, some of which is like not great. Mm -hmm. Sarah and I were talking before that, you know, she feels like some of her friends are saying, you know, like, oh, wow, I thought she was going to be the nominee and looks like she's not doing great. And you're like, whoa, everyone. Having gone through our Hillary experience, watching the first woman, first woman of color in that job, like, Mm -hmm. and how the press are treating her, what's your, what's your takeaway? I'm curious. I mean, it's just like the vice president is a job where the pure definition of success is to stay alive, not cause too many scandals, not cause any unforced errors and cast tie breaking votes. Like there is no way (laughs) to be a good vice president except to not die in office. Like her job is to stay alive and cast the votes. Everything else is bonus. So by that measure, she's doing a phenomenal job (laughs) and she has taken on some of the hardest like 
parts of the work in her portfolio, which is totally suited to who she is as a person of like wanting to tackle hard fights. Yeah, she wants to do hard things. You know, it's like people's like, oh, she's getting saddled with these hard things. I was like, no, she wants, you know, she's been mm-hmm. almost always, whatever job she's had, she's been the first in some way, right? Yeah. The first woman, the first person of color, the first woman of color, and had to do hard things and tackle this kind of like blowback. But I also feel like some of the pressure that is put on her, mm-hmm. you know, people think that if Biden might not run in 24. And, you know, what I knew from the start that that was no kind of layup. I knew, uh-huh. like, if you really want to be the first woman president, you know, starting as the first woman vice president might not be the easiest. You know, it could happen, but uh-huh. it's not going to be the easiest path. Yeah. Because you're going to get all the scrutiny for four years, because everyone's going to look at everything that you do through this like prism of ambition. And Mm -hmm. that's just like a lot of weight to carry for four Mm -hmm. years. Because, you know, on the one hand, you could say, like, don't take that job if you want to be president. (laughs) (laughs) But like, how do you like look at what's happening with her and the press and how she can maneuver these sort of expectations? Well, I think she has to be really intentional about determining what is her role what does success look like? And then not getting distracted by the stupid stuff. So much of the coverage is, you know, inherently (laughs) or obviously intinged by racism and sexism. Nobody knows how to cover the first woman vice president. They've never had to do it before. And they're so certain that they're not sexist and they're racist so that they... They go so far around, they come back to it. (laughs) It's just, you know, being the vice president is inherently a crappy job. It's not fun for anyone to be second in command, especially for someone who is so clearly like has a point of view. But I think she's doing quite well. It's time to take a quick break. When we get back, I want to ask Amanda how her organization Run for Something faces up to the gatekeepers of the Democratic Party who often support incumbents over new, young and diverse candidates. We'll hear how that plays out next on Just Something About Her with Amanda Lippman. And we're back with the co-founder of Run For Something, Amanda Lippman, on Just Something About Her. We can no longer say that being a woman or a person of color as like a candidate is risky because they, they, they are running and winning at unprecedented levels, right? The, yeah. Alexi McCammon had a story in Axios this morning about the mayoral race in Boston. For the first mm-hmm. time in history, a white man is not in serious contention to be the next mayor of Boston, a city with very checkered racial history. The seven candidates, four are women, six are people of color, and the women that went all around the country are, are doing things differently. Like, what's been the most inspiring story for you to see how women do things differently and change the status quo in your time run for something? Oh, this is like asking me to pick like my favorite puppy of all the puppies. <laughs> okay. So yeah. in 2017, we worked with Jennifer Carroll Foy, who yeah. was running for state house from Virginia House of Delegates, Black woman, graduated from Virginia Military Institute, incredible candidate, was up in a competitive primary. She won her primary by 10 votes while giving birth to twins. So Mm -hmm. she gave birth to these little twin preemie babies. She would knock doors during the day for her general and then go visit her babies in the NICU at night. She won her general election. She flipped the seat red to blue. Amazing. Right. We then worked in 2018 with Erin Zwiener, a state representative in Texas. Erin found out she was pregnant, like, a couple weeks after she launched her campaign, there's a great story in Time Magazine about her knocking doors on a local college campus and having to like stop and throw up and get mistaken for a college student. She's you know puking in a trash can, clutching a Gatorade while she's canvassing. Yeah. And Erin, when I talked to her for the Run for Something podcast, specifically said, I 
wasn't sure I could do this until I saw Jennifer had done it with two <gasps> babies and I was only having one. So there like if go. she did it with two, I could do it with one. Boom. There you go. The impact that one person has. It's so beautiful. Like exponential. It's such a virtuous cycle. And like now you've seen Erin probably in the news a bit because she's one of the Texas state reps who brought her now three-year-old daughter with her to DC because they were doing their job to fight for democracy. And like even now showing that young women who do not fit the mold of what a politician should look like, who do not meet sort of the predetermined criteria of leaders can do this, should do this, are doing this and Mm -hmm. like are doing it in such a way that is so courageous and bold and powerful and unapologetic. It's just, it's awesome. So the diversity is amazing. Is that organic? You know, I'm sure you make it a priority to try Mm -hmm. to recruit diverse candidates or like, did that just happen? It's a little bit of both. Some of it Mm -hmm. is organic because we, you know, we were intentional about the tone in which we speak and the places that we are present. Some of it was targeted through advertising and press and the storytelling that we do and that we try really hard to intentionally lift up the candidates and electeds of color, the young women, the young sort of non-traditional quote unquote leaders that we work with. And some of that is intentional through our endorsement process in that we really make sure that we focus our endorsements and Mm -hmm. especially the staff time and the money that we put behind folks to prioritize diversity in that regard too. I really think that your success in recruiting diverse candidates is like one of the things that people could probably replicate in other sectors. Do you think? I think so. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of it is intentional. It takes work. And we did a lot of like data collection to figure out because you can't change what you don't measure. You know, first we had to figure out like, okay, what are our benchmarks here? Mm -hmm. And then what do we need to improve upon? So we actually realized after 2020 that we were doing a remarkably good job of working with black candidates, Mm -hmm. but that our numbers amongst Latino candidates and amongst AAPI folks were a little lower than we liked. Okay, great. We know that we've sent the benchmarks. Let's now work to see what we can do to improve. So that meant everything from advertising to working with partner groups to specifically targeting press, you know, there's all kinds of levers you can pull. And then thinking about the timeline upon which we measure success. I do think that's Mm -hmm. something that gets really frustrating when you're working in these kinds of goals is like, you want to do something on a Tuesday and see the impact on a Friday, but that's not how this works. You you do it and you do it again and again and again. And then a year or two years later, you see the impact. So, but you're not just like expecting that they're just going to show up. Well, I think what we found is that early in the pipeline, it's Mm -hmm. pretty even men, women. And then as we saw after the first two years in particular, that the people who actually made it all the way to getting on the ballot were more likely to be young white men. So Mm. we had to do some intentional work Mm -hmm. of making sure that people in that pipeline who hadn't yet signed up to file, who were young women, young people of color, young LGBTQ folks, we like to have to do a little more active outreach as opposed to passive. But that's a learning and something we can sort of improve upon. Yeah, Yeah. right. And not surprising, right? Because like Mm -hmm. the men are plugging into a power system that recognizes them. You know, it's been their world. Mm -hmm. And there's like an old saying of like, you have to ask a woman seven times to run for office. A man is just going to tell you what he's running for and ask you for money. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's tends to have been my experience. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you talk about how your organization is trying to get rid of the gatekeepers Mm -hmm. because gatekeepers and the Democratic Party, Mm -hmm. the people that decide who gets money, you know, we're seeing progressive candidates being opposed by the Democratic establishment, right? There's like, you know, right now we're in the middle of the Ohio House special election where Nina Turner, who was vice chair of Bernie Sanders' campaign, going up against Chantel Brown, who is considered to be more moderate. Mm -hmm. Do your candidates usually face a lot of backlash from the party establishment? They do quite often. They do. 
Because I could, I, I could also see. It depends where you are. It depends where you are. Because I bet yeah. some places, unfortunately, there is no Democratic Party establishment, and they're you know running for seats that Democrats don't normally run for. Well, it depends on the state. Depends on the yeah. kind of office. You know, one of the things I think we have been really thoughtful about is working in primaries and acknowledging that when you're working in a primary, you're going up against an establishment and. Democratic primaries in often blue places are where we get the best Democrats. Like there's a reason that the Senate majority hmm. leaders from New York and the House speakers from California, they've had oh. to fight to be the cream of the crop. Oh, interesting. That mm-hmm. is such a good point, Amanda. Right. I had not ever considered that way, but they've had to fight within their own party to be a leader. Yes. So like it is good to engage hmm. in primaries. It is how mm-hmm. we get especially women and people of color through the process. Why is that? Why is it normally that how you get women and people of color through the process? Well, I think part of it is uh, self-selection and that when you have a limited number of Democrats and a limited number of resources in a place mm-hmm. where it's harder to win, party operatives historically have tended to go for the the safe bet or the person we think can win, which yeah. we heard a story once of in a pretty you know competitive place, the state caucus was trying to do candidate recruitment and they were struggling to find folks to run in a particular district. Mm-hmm. So they encouraged the local county folks to find the local high school yearbook flip to the page with the high school football team, find the coach, call the coach, get the football coach to run for office. Like, wow. Hmm. What a cool way to encourage white men probably to run for office. Right. Like that's pretty typical. So I think part of it is that when you get Democrats running often in more urban or suburban environments, they often tend to include and be representing, you know, communities of color. Right. Makes sense. Yeah. So I do think that's part of the reason we've come up against some backlash. But we've also found that often our candidates will be jumping into a race where nobody had filed. And when they do jump in, all of a sudden the party's like, maybe we should find someone who can actually win this. And then they will they will encourage an older, usually white man to jump in as well. Right. Are there certain tactics that work well or have you been surprised by some outcomes Mm -hmm. or tactics that people have used when they are dealing with establishment backlash? Out hustle. Outwork yeah. and out hustle. It's almost always someone who is willing to take an incumbent candidate sort of by surprise or like underestimated. Yep. I would say the other thing I really appreciate is often we will work with candidates running against incumbents and we'll get calls from party folks. We'll be like, I can't ever say this publicly, but thank God you're primarying them. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> they are a, you know, insert descriptor here of piece of shit. And I think that always makes me laugh of like, you won't throw out the pieces of shit, but you're glad we'll take them on. Great. We'll do it. Right. right. Okay. We'll do it. Can you guess the sort of success rate of when? I haven't looked at our exact breakdown of folks mm-hmm. primarying incumbents, but my top of mind guesstimate is probably about 60% of the folks we have who are taking on Democratic incumbents win. Well, wow. it's pretty good. It's really good. Yeah. That's a very high number. Yeah. And our overall win rate is somewhere in the like 45%, which is is also great. Yeah, it's about where I want it. Because I think if it's much, much higher, it means you're not taking big enough risks. Mm -hmm. We had benchmarked about 10% is what we guessed because, you know, 90% of incumbents win re-election. Most of our folks are going up in long shot races. A lot Mm -hmm. of them are dealing with gerrymandered state legislative districts. So that we have about a 45% win rate is excellent. How are your folks doing in office now that you do have actual office holders? Um, It's very hard. Yeah. Yeah. Are they finding success? You know, what have you learned about your incumbents and what kind of support they need? Serving is very hard. And they have done some amazing stuff, you know, from 
in Texas, James Tallarico leading the charge to cap the cost of insulin, to in Colorado, a number of things from you know housing stipulations for undocumented folks to drug price reduction to creating a public health care system. In California, they just passed legislation that will require diversity workforce in Hollywood, mm-hmm. like tied to tax credits, which is actually really meaningful. Oh, when you really? Think. Isn't that cool? That is very cool because that industry needs it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> So, Amanda, you wrote a good piece recently for Salon about ranked choice voting and the New York City mayoral election. Yeah. You mentioned how it actually worked to produce a more diverse and representative New York City Council. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to show how shaking up the way things get done can shake up who gets them done. So first, explain to us how ranked choice voting works and what the theory is for how it makes a broader range of candidates more viable. So ranked choice voting for people who aren't familiar is a process through which you go to the polls and you stack rank your preferred candidates. So I went to the polls here in Brooklyn where I live and I looked at the mayoral candidates and the city council candidates and I said, this woman will be my number one, this person will be my number two, this person will be my number three. And then when they go and count the votes, it basically acts as like an immediate runoff. So they take everybody's first choice votes and then the people who are in last place, they drop them. And if you voted for a last place candidate first, they'll take your person you ranked second and then third and then fourth and then fifth until they get down to two candidates. Mm-hmm. New York City was a, sort of the biggest place to try this out in our municipal elections. It was only for mayor, city council, public advocate and the like. So not for any county or, or federal races. And I actually think it was amazing for a couple of reasons. One is that it forced the candidates to build coalitions that they might not necessarily. And like you saw this mm-hmm. on the mayoral level of yep. you know, Carthen Garcia and Andrew Yang campaigning together towards the end. Did I necessarily love that? Uh, no, but I understood the political strategy behind it. And it clearly paid off for her in that she picked up quite a bit of Yang's votes in the final round. Two, we heard from a lot of the candidates that run for something work with them. We had 36 candidates running across 32 districts. We ultimately will have, if two more win in November, because there's two in competitive general elections as well, we'll have 18 members of the New York City Council who are run for something alum. Wow, that's great. It's awesome. It's almost all people of color, almost all women. (laughs) Many of them said to us like, I wouldn't have run if not for ranked choice voting because I don't think I would have gotten enough first place, but I think I could be enough people's first, second, or third. Isn't that an interesting way to think about yourself? Or like, it's like based on your life experience, that's probably what has happened to them. And I think it really allowed for like more thought to go into the voting process. Right, because the voter has more to consider Yeah, if they're voting in that way. It sort of takes you out of an ideological place, which... You know, I had, I we always sort of think like voters are really not that ideological. Most people do not have a cohesive political ideology or a policy position. You just like sure. you vote on a combination of like some policy positions you care about, this person you kind of like, this person you just like get a weird vibe off of. You know, there's no <laughs> quite rational decision. Yeah. But ranked choice voting yeah. really illuminated that. And they showed this in particular on the mayoral side of like the people who stack ranked Eric Adams and then Andrew Yang, and then the people who stack ranked Catherine Garcia and Maya Wiley, you were more likely to align on gender than you were on ideology. Oh, interesting. Do you think that there's something about, you know, a woman as a coalition being seen as sort of a coalition builder, which is something I know that we do believe about women leaders. We think that they're good team captains. We think that they're like good at bringing people together, working in a cooperative way. Do you think there's an element of ranked choice voting that plays into that strength of theirs? I don't, probably. I think that's certainly part of it. I also think there's a certain amount of like, because you sort of get more than one vote as part of ranked choice voting, mm-hmm. you can kind of vote your heart 
in a way that's sort of like kind of beautiful a little yeah. bit in that you get to, you know, you're not wasting it because yeah. ultimately nobody's vote was wasted. Yeah. And I think that can often be a little complicated of like, well, I would vote for them, but I don't think they can win. Well, in ranked choice voting, like at some point your vote will count towards their victory or towards them getting dropped off the ballot. So there's pros here. Right. It just felt like there was a lot more possibility. Yeah. Stick with us. We'll be right back with Amanda Littman to ask the question that's too big to ignore. Is democracy too broken to save? That's next on Just Something About Her. Welcome back to Just Something About Her. We are here with Amanda Littman. You know, one of the uh, your mottos about politics, which as someone who's worked in politics, I know it's really important, is mm-hmm. there are no off years. Mm-hmm. It's always a timely time to talk to Amanda because there are no off years. So tell us why it's wrong to look at politics only in the context of big election cycles. Well, quite literally, there are no off years in that there are something like 90,000 elections in 2021. Run for something is going to have endorsed more than 300 candidates for this cycle. Right. So like New Jersey and Virginia have, they have state um, legislative races, state level governor races, but I'm sure there's cities. Cities and counties, counties Washington, mm-hmm. Michigan, Texas, Ohio, North Carolina, Florida. We have candidates in, I think, 33 states this year. Wow. There's always elections. There's always local elections going on. But I also think if you think about elections as compounding on each other, yes. you know, the 2017 John Ossoff congressional race that he lost helped build to the 2018 congressional race that Lucy McBath yeah, won. Yeah, it did. Which, and then the Stacey Abrams race of 2018 and 2020, which helped build to Biden's win in Georgia in 2020, which helped get us to Senator John Ossoff in 2021. Like these things do not happen in a vacuum. They build on each other. So the work that we do in 2021 will ultimately affect what happens in 2024 and 2028 and beyond. So if you only think about it in single like one to two year election cycles, you are missing the bigger picture. Yeah. And when we lost in 16 and after our like hideous experience in that Mm -hmm. campaign, I was like, when anybody, somebody would ask me what happened and I'd just be like, look, it is all broken. Mm -hmm. It is broken at every level from polling and focus groups and, you know, modeling. And there's either going to be a revitalization at the grassroots level and democracy will be saved because it will come up from that level or like it won't happen at all. Is that like, why do you focus on local elections? Why is that important? I think there's policy reasons and that most of the things that like make our lives good or bad come from the local level, you know, like, yeah, like electricity bills and water, you know, city streets, restaurants, liquor licenses, school funding. Schools, a lot of the, yeah. School boards, huge power, huge. And like we're seeing that now with like the arguments over school curriculums and, and whether schools should open or close, that kind of thing that comes right. from school boards. So policy wise, big decisions get made in local offices. Politics wise, it is the only way you can rebuild a political party like you're not going to build a sustainable Democratic Party from the top down. We know this because like Obama kind of tried to and like, God bless him, it doesn't last. Every president has tried to and it doesn't last. And we're always surprised when it doesn't work out. And we should never be because presidents, they sort of define the party in the moment that they're in Mm -hmm. office. But as soon as they are gone, you know, it's leaderless until there's another nominee or another president. And I think you're really right that like the way it gets rebuilt is good candidates Mm -hmm. at the local level making a difference in people's lives 
and people understanding that that is Democrats that are doing that. And I feel like that's how you save democracy. Mm -hmm. It's so unsustainable to focus all of your efforts on a national scale. It's like demoralizing. But the work that we do locally, it's so much more engaging as an activist, as an operative to just like you get more wins and winning is what keeps this movement going. <laughs> like we don't get any it's wins true. on the national level. It sucks. It's true. Just like improve your batting average. Yeah, you know, I've been thinking a lot like if democracy survives another like three years, if we can make it three years, I think run for something and our candidates in our community will like save us into the next century. Wow. We just got to like get into the next three years. It's like we're not quite big enough yet, but we're almost there. That uh-huh. we could make a big difference. Because if we get to where Run for Something has existed for a decade, oh, we will have right. people running for president. We will have members of Congress. We will have senators. We will have governors. We will have state speakers. We will have county executives. Like we mm-hmm. will have a little, like a little shadow network of yeah. Run for Something community that are people who are like are in it for the right reasons. Yeah. Yeah. I think it'll be very meaningful. I feel like we're in like, long-term struggle for a democracy, right? You know, some people are saying like, oh my gosh, we're going to, it's, everything's going to be ruined because there's a possibility that Democrats could lose the Congress in 2022. And I'm like, y'all, like, this is not a four-year fight or two-year fight. This is like a, you know, decades and decades and decades to like the question of whether we can revitalize our democracy or, you know, is it too broken to, to save. And I'm wondering on battleground, you kind of, you know, you like face this existential uh-huh. question. So like conversations are kind of tough. They can get grim. But are there moments from your interviews that have changed your perspective, giving you hope? We have had some pretty dark conversations. Mm-hmm. I will say that we had a conversation a couple weeks ago with Tyler Kincaid, an NBC reporter. We were talking about QAnon and critical race theory and sort of the fight over school boards. Mm-hmm. And he said something towards the end I've been thinking about quite a bit because I asked him, like, who are the people fighting back here? And Tyler said, you know, I'm I'm still doing a bunch of reporting on this and we'll see where it goes. But I think it will be students, high school students, possibly college students who will lead the way to saying enough. The real issue Mm -hmm. is how we're being treated in schools or the racism we endure in schools. We're seeing a little bit of that. It's not been widely covered yet, but there are definitely out there. And I think that's really the people who would be the ones with the credibility, too, because they could say what they are not learning or whether they oppose what they're learning. So like that sort of to me was a light bulb of, oh, right. Like, it's really cliche to say the the kids are all right. The kids are going to save us. But like. That's it. That's the whole right. ballgame. Like maybe there'll be other things that can run interference and, you know, yeah. help, you know, help truth get a leg up on disinformation. But you also have that the kids are going to inherit this and they're the ones that are fighting back. Mm-hmm. And I do. I really believe that everyone is optimistic in this moment. Everyone thinks that they can make a difference in this moment. Like that is what does save democracy. Thanks for doing this. Of course. Good to see you. You too. Sarah, are you there? I'm here. What'd you think? So smart. So smart. Actually, this is a good story. I don't think I've ever told this before. On election night, 2016, John Podesta had to go over to the Javits Center at one point, like very late, one or two in the morning, something like that, just to tell people that were there to go home. You know, we said it was like still too close to call and we didn't think there was going to be an outcome that Mm -hmm. night. And actually, little did we know, Hillary Clinton was calling Donald Trump right at that (laughs) moment to concede to him. Anyway, John spoke, and then I stood up on this little chair that he had spoken from, and I just had to smile because when I saw before me were like hundreds 
of oh. devastated young people, but just hundreds of like committed mm-hmm. young Americans that like I knew were not going to let this be a permanent thing. And I remember specifically seeing Amanda Lippman just tears just streaming down her face. And, you know, I was like, look, whatever happens tonight, you know, he, meaning Trump, is not the future of this country. You are the future of this country. And I was just so certain of that. And then sure enough, I mean, hours later, Amanda Lippman is building yeah. front for something. I mean, I really think of all the solutions that people have picked up after 2016, you know, run for something to say, okay, we are going to get young people to run for office and we're going to start at the local level. Like that's where you build a real foundation, not just like for the Democratic Party, but just for the country, because you want Mm -hmm. every generation represented in government. And it takes a long time, but that's because things that are meaningful and long lasting take a long time to build. So I'm just so glad that she's doing this. And I feel like I was right (laughs) on election night to say like, yeah, this is what's going to win in the long term. I always think about how age is such a tricky thing for women. It's like when we're young, we feel like we're too young and we can't prove ourselves. You know, you always say young men are uh, judged on their potential and young women need to bring receipts. And at that point, we don't feel like we have receipts. Mm -hmm. Like we have this small window where we feel like we are the right age for our jobs. And then we get to another age and we're washed up, which is a terrible thing to say about (laughs) women. So I I think that this is so helpful to show that there can be women of all ages in these positions. And they see it as a real option for them. Mm-hmm. My other big takeaway is how successful Run for Something has been in making their candidates diverse. Mm-hmm. I mean, the numbers that she had, like that is a very hard thing to hit. And what's great about it is it shows that if you put some effort into it, and it sounds like they were pretty strategic about reaching out to people and consistent, mm-hmm. you can do that, you know? So... Can we talk about Vice President Kamala Harris again? Because this is already starting to be the conversation amongst my friends, which is like, can she win in 2024 if she has to? Mm. Look at all the bad press she's getting. Like, she definitely couldn't beat a Trumpian Republican. I mean, I I thought it was illuminating for you to say, like, maybe the path for the first woman president is not by becoming the VP. And it made me think, like, is this another one of those glass cliff situations that we talk about so often where she was put in office during a very precarious time when the country was in peril? Right. And so the odds of her succeeding are much lower than if she was in a normal situation. Yeah, I just I have never felt that being the sitting vice president is like a tee up for her. Mm-hmm. And I think for people who it is unfair to her to buy into that mm-hmm. assumption that Biden like anointed her, which is also a little, you know, mm-hmm. a little patronizing. Right. I mean, if anything, it's harder because basically as vice president, you are considered to be a presidential candidate for four years. And as the first woman, you're like under extraordinary scrutiny. And then there's this like prism of ambition by which everything you do is considered as it's like you know, setting yourself up for 2024. Mm -hmm. So I actually think that it's very, you know, the situation is very difficult, but she's also been very successful, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's August. So everyone who's like freaking out, you know, like, oh, she's not doing well and it's August of 2021. You know, there's a lot of time left in this administration. I'd say. (laughs) You know, I know this better. Like she puts her head down, she gets work done, she works really hard for people. They like that. All right. Well, I'm glad we got to discuss that because it's been top of mind for a lot of people in my circle. I so. mean, <laughs> when your text chain starts going about something, it is time to address it on Justin yeah, the Better. <laughs> exactly. 
This is Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thank you to Amanda Lippman for being on the show. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating in the Apple Podcast app. I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams handles research. Stephanie Stender is our post producer. Sari Soffer is our producer. And Christian Castro Russell is our executive producer. 